All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weiss, and as always, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is always a busy schedule to tune in, log on, and hang out with me for just a little while as I talk about what can only be considered the most interesting information in healthcare. Compliance. All right. Now that I've had my five seconds of fun, I want to talk today about leveling the playing field. Because right now, that field isn't very level. Insurance companies continue to hold leverage over providers, over hospitals and health systems, surgery centers, DME suppliers. And they do that through a variety of mechanisms. One, controlling the rate of reimbursement and whether or not you actually get reimbursed. You know, one of my favorite quotes comes from the Supreme Court who characterized the Medicaid statute in a 1981 opinion quoting a federal judge in New York as, quote-unquote, an aggravated assault on the English language. Now, one of the things that I continuously come across are payers who, during the course of an audit, when they're looking backwards, retrospectively, They pull from medical coverage guidelines. They pull from local coverage determinations, local coverage articles to cite their rationale for why the services billed and paid aren't medically necessary. But the problem is, more often than not, we're running into what can be classified as an ex post facto guideline. Now, ex post facto guidelines is the same thing if you're looking at an ex post facto law, right? Because an ex post facto law is after the fact. It's retrospectively. And when we're talking about ex post facto laws, it's critical to understand that both federal and state governments are prohibited from enacting ex post facto laws, and courts actually apply the same analysis, whether the law in question is a federal or state enactment. So when these prohibitions were actually adopted as part of the original Constitution, a lot of people understood the term ex post facto laws to actually embrace all retrospective laws or laws governing or controlling past transactions whether it was civil or criminal. Now, keep in mind that every law that makes something criminal, an act that was innocent when it was done, or that inflicts a greater punishment than the law annexed, 
to the crime when it was committed. That's what's considered an ex post facto law within the prohibition of the Constitution. So when we talk about ex post facto laws, we talk about three things. Those which punish as a crime an act previously committed, which was actually innocent when done. Now stay with me. All my coders, auditors, compliance professionals, attorneys who may be listening into this, this is not an episode about the law, but it's about taking an aspect of the law and looking at how insurance companies are deploying ex post facto guidelines. So again, two other aspects to the ex post facto law, and I think then we can start to draw that correlation. So again, ex post facto law are those which make more burdensome the punishment for a crime after its commission or those which actually deprive an individual who's been charged with a crime of any defense available according to law at the time when the act was committed. So now how do we tie this back to coding guidelines, audits? Well, when an insurance company changes a policy, which we all know happens on a regular basis, more frequent than what we would like to see happening. When they take an original policy that provides guidance, whether it's the diagnoses that substantiate medical necessity or those that don't, the frequency to which something can actually be performed, what modifiers are applicable. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, they changed the policy to make it more restrictive. And now the insurance company is doing a retrospective audit. And they're going back two years, three years, whatever it is, 12 months. And they're trying to utilize guidelines that were not in place at the time the services were rendered, but rather deploying the new guidelines as a mechanism to be able to, what? Recoup. We work in a pay and chase model. We work in one of the only industries that I can think of where a patient comes in, has a service rendered without first even understanding how much that service is going to cost in many cases. Now, I know some of you are sitting out there and you're going, wait a minute, Sean, hang on a second now. Our patients do know because they have a $20 copay, a $50 copay, a $100 copay, or they owe 20%. Well, I would agree with the first examples that I gave of copays at 20, 50, or 100. 
But the argument comes into play when you say, well, Sean, they know they owe 20%. Well, how do they know what 20% is unless you tell them up front how much that service is going to cost? So my whole point in talking about ex post facto is for those of you going through an audit to make sure that the guidelines being used were the guidelines that were actually in effect at the date the services were actually rendered. Because if they weren't, then the payer has no right to the, recruit, to the recoupment of those dollars under the new policy. If the new policy is more stringent or strict than what it was in the past. Now, don't confuse this with what I run into frequently is when somebody says to me, but Sean, there is no local coverage determination. There is no local coverage article. There's no medical coverage guideline. So we're okay. No, you're not. The absence of an LCD, NCD, LCA, MCG, whatever you want to refer to it as, is not open season. It's not the wild, wild west to where you just start billing for services because eventually CMS is going to, or the payers are going to create a policy. And in a minute, I want to talk about the difference between a policy and a guideline because there's still so much misperception. But I get emails all the time. I get direct messages all the time on LinkedIn from people who are saying, Sean, CMS is now clawing back on something that we rendered a year ago and there was no policy. They can't do that, can they? The answer is, of course they can. But I want to talk about the difference between a guideline and a policy. And let me be clear. A guideline is a best practice. It's a recommendation, a suggestion. It is not law. A policy, a local coverage determination is a policy. That is something that has gone through formal rulemaking. Some may say it's actually promulgated into the law. But a policy is a law for CMS. Thus, they have the authority to recoup those dollars when you have violated that policy. A guideline, on the other hand, when somebody says, but my specialty society says our guidelines are. Well, here's the question for you. Or I love when somebody says, the American Medical Association's guidelines are. Well, let me ask you, how many of you have actually submitted a claim to the American Medical Association for reimbursement? How many of you have actually submitted a claim to your specialty society and were reimbursed? None of you. So why are you using guidelines as gospel? Refer to the policies. Refer to the 
medical coverage guidelines. So SIUs, they are playing a huge role in healthcare. SIUs are the special investigative units for the commercial payers. They're investigating potential fraud, waste, or abuse. They're painted much in the same way as a UPIC. Now, I always have a lot of people that say to me, they call me on the phone or they send me an email and they go, Sean, I was just audited by the UPIC. No, you weren't. UPICs don't audit. UPICs carry out investigations. There may have been an audit that was then referred to the Unified Program Integrity Contractor, who then conducted an investigation to make a determination as to whether or not there was any there there, meaning whether or not they needed to assess an overpayment that would then be escalated back to the Medicare Administrative Contractor and or potentially to the Office of the Inspector General. But it's important to remember that SIUs, contractors, and the max they are all bound by contractual obligations, and others are bound by statute, by regulation, by acts, and by laws. Notice the one term that I didn't use, guidelines. None of them are bound to guidelines because they're just best practices, as we said. They're recommendations. But SIUs are bound by contractual obligation. That's why it's so important to understand what's in your participation agreements. Contractors for CMS, the Medicare administrative contractors, they are bound by statute, by regulations, by acts, by laws. The bottom line is you have to hold them accountable and not allow them to paint with a broad brush or broad strokes or to create a narrative that fits a suspected violation. Knowing your rights and what they are goes a long way to ensuring a level, a, a level playing field. So some of the things that I want to talk about in this podcast, <clears throat> I want to talk about contracts. I want to talk about your governing documents and policies for each payer you participate with. I want to talk about certain sections of the Medicare Beneficiary Integrity Manual, right? The Medicare Benefits Integrity Manual. And I want to talk about 3.3.1.1, which is the medical record review, which was actually revised not too long ago. I want to talk about medical necessity as it's defined both by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, as well as what was laid out by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in the Kaminsky case. I want to also be able to talk about clinical review judgment as it's defined by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And depending on how far I'm able to get, I, I, I think I want to try to attack the treating physician rule. Now, again, keep in mind, 
This is not used in the social security or disability benefits, but we still use it in CMS cases. And then we could get into some other subsections of different acts, and we could talk about the United States Code and maybe some things tied to the Code of Federal Regulations. But let's just see. Let's just see how long I can talk. Your contracts and governing documents and the policies of the payers that you participate with, these things are critical. I can't tell you how many times I've had a client reach out to me and say, hey, Sean, could you take a look at our contract and let me know what you think? I'm worried, and I get it. And the contract is 10 years old, 11 years old. I can't make this stuff up. And the first thing that I say to them is, how can you even enforce this? How do you know what fee schedule you're actually being reimbursed under? Why have you waited 10 years? Why have you waited five years? Why have you waited anything longer than 12 months to review your participation agreements? It's so critical for providers and the leadership within organizations to understand what's actually in your participation agreements. When they expire, or if they automatically roll over, what rate or what rates are you reimbursed under? How does the payer define medical necessity? And with respect to policies, the easiest and cleanest way to build a policy for a service that you render is to identify the top services billed to each payer and in the absence of an LCD or MCP, create your own policy so that when a, dis a dispute arises and there's no coverage determinations and they're calling into question why you rendered a service at a frequency that you did, why you used the diagnoses that you did, why you utilized the modifiers that you did, why you documented it in a certain fashion. You're able to produce a policy that says something to the effect of, in the absence of a local coverage determination, local coverage article, or medical coverage policy, or medical coverage document, or guideline, we were left to make determinations based on our physician's clinical judgment as to what was reasonable, appropriate, and necessary. Folks, those are the three terms that you always want to ask yourself when you're conducting an audit or when you're reviewing documentation prior to assigning codes. Ask yourselves, one, were the services reasonable? Two, were they appropriate? And three, were they necessary? Which brings me to section 3.3.1.1, which is titled Medical Record Review. 
And this was updated July of 2020 and became effective August of 2020. It was implemented at the same time. And this section actually applies to the Medicare administrative contractors, the comprehensive error rate testing, the recovery audit contractors, the supplemental medical review contractors, the SMERCs, and the UPICs, Unified Program Integrity Contractors. And it specifically talks about clinical review judgment and the fact that it involves two steps. The first is the synthesis of all submitted medical record information. So progress notes, diagnostic findings, medications, nursing notes. These are looked at to be able to create a longitudinal clinical picture of the patient. And then second, the application of this clinical picture to the review criteria is to make a reviewer determination on whether the clinical requirements and the relevant policy have been met. So again, the MAX, the CERT, RAC, and UPIC, their clinical review staff have to use clinical review judgment when making medical record review determinations about a claim. Listen, clinical review judgment does not replace poor or inadequate medical records. Clinical review judgment, by definition, is not a process that MAX, CERTs, RACs, and UPICs can use to override, supersede, or disregard a policy requirement. Remember, policies include laws. They include regulations, the CMS rulings, manual instructions. Remember, MAC policy articles often are attached to an LCD or listed in the Medicare coverage database or national coverage decisions as well as local coverage determinations. So this calls into question the credentials of a reviewer. This is, for me, one of the most critical aspects of my review on behalf of clients who are going through an audit with a payer, especially CMS. And here's what it says. The MACs, the RACs, and the CERTs shall ensure, now listen to this, shall ensure that services reviewed by other licensed healthcare professionals are within their scope of practice and that their medical review strategy supports the need for their specialized expertise in the adjudication of a particular claim. That's so critical. Because the government's saying these reviewers are required to possess the requisite skills in a particular area that they are reviewing. And if they don't, you have the right to call that in question. And how do you do that? It's simple. Because CMS requires that the RACs the MACs, the CERTs, have to ensure that a licensed medical professional will perform medical record reviews for the purpose of determining medical necessity. 
using their clinical review judgment to evaluate medical record documentation. Folks, did you just hear what I said? This is probably the most important part of everything I've set up to this point. They shall ensure that a licensed medical professional will perform medical record reviews for the purpose of determining medical necessity. Using their clinical review judgment to evaluate medical record documentation. Now here's the next part. Certified coders will perform coding determinations. And the CERT and MAX are encouraged to make coding determinations by using certified coders. Now, UPICs, UPICs have the discretion to make coding determinations using certified coders. So again, UPICs get to use their discretion. They have been empowered by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to use their discretion as to whether or not they use certified coders in making coding determinations. It's not a requirement. But each of them, the MACs, the RACs, the CERTs, the UPICs, all must maintain a credentials file for each reviewer, including consultants, contract staff, subcontractors, and temporary staff who actually perform medical record reviews. And the credential file has to contain at least a copy of the reviewer's active professional license. Why? Because if you challenge their credentials, if you challenge the results of an audit, you have the right to call into question the credentials of the reviewer. All right. So I, I, I want to talk now about defining risk. Now, before, and I know some, some may put a comment out there, but before you do, keep in mind, I'm talking about a definition. And I'm talking about a definition because it helps to convey an argument. I'm not pushing the fact that this is a policy. I'm highlighting a definition that has been issued by the American Medical Association, who works oftentimes in concert with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So what I'm providing for you is the AMA definition of risk. When clinical and non-clinical review de are deployed by a payer, and here's what it says, quote, definitions of risk are based upon the usual behavior and thought processes of a physician or other qualified healthcare professional in the same specialty. Folks, this is why we request the credentials for the physician reviewer in all cases. I can't tell you in the recent past, how many times I've had a medical director 
from one of the commercial payers come on the line. And when we ask them to introduce themselves and their credentials, how many of them will share with you the fact that they are a retired physician? I'm a retired pediatrician. I am a retired podiatrist. I am a retired family practitioner. Well, explain to me why you're on the phone for a peer-to-peer review of a neuroblastoma surgery. Or how are you on the line to discuss a total hip replacement with a prosthesis and its medical necessity? Or how are you able to have a peer-to-peer conversation with respect to infusion of rheumatologic biologics? There's just no way. So, for the purposes of medical decision-making, level of risk is based upon consequences of the problem or problems addressed at the encounter when appropriately treated. Risk also includes medical decision-making related to the need to initiate or forego further testing, treatment, and or hospitalization, end quote. Such a critical definition to any post-audit rebuttal. Now, we started to talk about medical necessity. And for the purposes of this discussion, I want to talk about what is referred to as generally accepted standards of medical practice, okay? Now, everybody's heard, or if you haven't, there are three aspects to the overall definition of medically necessary or medical necessity, right? Because we know that it shall mean healthcare services that a physician exercising prudent clinical judgment would provide to a patient for the purpose of preventing, evaluating, diagnosing, or treating an illness, injury, disease, or its symptoms, and that are in accordance with generally accepted standards of medical practice. So, as I said, for the purposes of this part of the discussion, generally accepted standards of medical practice means standards that are based on credible scientific evidence published in peer-reviewed medical literature that are generally recognized by the relevant medical community or otherwise consistent with the standards set forth in policy issues involving clinical judgment. So, I said I wanted to address the Second Circuit Court of Appeals that was cited in Kaminsky as they defined medical necessity. And here's what it says, quote, Medical necessity must refer to what is medically necessary for a particular patient and hence entails an individual assessment rather than a general determination of what works in the ordinary case. The light should be going off. 
Let me read it one more time. Medical necessity must refer to what is medically necessary for a particular patient and hence entails an individual assessment rather than a general determination of what works in the ordinary case. So how does Medicare view medical necessity? Well, first, it's important to understand that medical necessity is defined under Title 18 of the Social Security Act, specifically Section 1862A1A. And here's what it says, quote, Notwithstanding any other provision of this title, no payment may be made under Part A or Part B for any expenses incurred for items or services which, except for items and services described in a succeeding paragraph, are not reasonable and necessary for the diagnosis or treatment of illness or injury or to improve the functioning of a malformed body member. So what I've just provided for you is a legal doctrine by which evidence-based clinical standards are used to determine whether a treatment or procedure is reasonable, necessary, and or appropriate. Folks, remember the three terms I used just a few short moments ago? Is the service reasonable? Is it necessary? And is it appropriate? So, one of the big arguments that I like to make on a case, especially when we have non-clinical reviewers or they tell me I have a clinical reviewer, but there's just no way this is somebody with the requisite skills and the specialty for which I am engaged. I like to use the treating physician rule. And here's why. The first section of the Medicare statute is the prohibition. And it says, quote, nothing in this title shall be construed. Now listen to this, folks. Nothing in this title shall be construed to authorize any federal officer or employee to exercise any supervision over uh, supervision or control over the practice of medicine or the manner in which medical services are provided. One more time. This is the first section of the Medicare statute, and it's the prohibition. Again, nothing in this title shall be construed to authorize any federal officer or employee to exercise any supervision or control over the practice of medicine or the manner in which medical services are provided. So from this, one could conclude that the beneficiary's physician should decide what services are medically necessary for the beneficiary and a substantial line of authority in the Social Security Disabilities Benefit Area holds that the treating physician's opinion is entitled to special weight and is binding upon the secretary when not contradicted by substantial evidence. But listen to this. Because some courts have applied the rationale of the treating physician rule in Medicare cases and have actually rejected the secretary's assertion that the treating physician rule should not be applied to Medicare determinations. In fact, in Holland v. Sullivan, the court concluded, 
Though the considerations bearing on the weight to be accorded a treating physician's opinion are not necessarily identical in the disability and Medicare context, here's the big part. You ready? I wish I had a drum roll. We would expect the secretary to place significant reliance on the informed opinion of a treating physician and either to apply the treating physician rule with its component of some extra weight to be accorded that opinion. But here's the best part. You ready? Even, even if contradicted by substantial evidence or to supply a reasoned basis in conformity with statutory purposes for declining to do so. All right. The last thing that I want to talk about is something called judgment error. And and this is, if the overpayment is the result of the insurance company changing its judgment after paying the claim, meaning they're determining the service was outside the scope of the insured's coverage plan, as an example, providers may not be obligated to reimburse the insurance company. Folks, many states have decided insurance companies are not entitled to reimbursement if the provider made no misrepresentation to promote the payment and had no reason to suspect the payment was an error. I know payers always like to say, you should have known. Well, really? How many times have you changed the policy in the last year? However, a provider cannot keep any payment that would be considered beyond the scope of service. So if you build for something in error, make sure you return it. All right, folks. So this takes me to the end of this current podcast. As always, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule to listen in, tune in, and hang out with me as I cover some of these various topics. And I know today I didn't have any special guests, but I'm hoping that this discussion about leveling the playing field is beneficial in some way, shape, or form. And as I say at the end of every single one of my podcasts, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. And until next time, I'll continue to try just a little bit harder. Folks, thanks for tuning in to The Compliance Guy. My name is Sean Weiss, and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon.